Some years ago, you sent me to Africa to minister there, and I found myself in one place in um, heading to Zambia in south-central Africa in order to teach pastors there. I traveled in a vehicle with two other pastor teachers and a fourth man in our group by the name of Eugene. Eugene was a deacon in his church, and his sole mission was to get the four of us from South Africa through Botswana into Zambia and back in one piece. 52-hour round trip by Land Rover. As the journey unfolded, it became increasingly clear that Eugene was uniquely gifted for this task and that the task was complicated and not altogether safe at certain places. That reality became, was put on acute display at the Botswana-Zambia border. Eugene got us to the Zambezi River, which we had to cross by ferry, at 5.15 in the morning. It was 45 minutes before the ferry arrived. As we sat half asleep in our vehicle, we were waiting all alone in the pre-dawn darkness And I have to say, a lot of judgmental thoughts rattled around in my brain about Eugene's hyper-safe time management. Forty-five minutes, and we're right here sitting on the river. No one's in front of us. I think there might have been one car ahead. But I soon realized that Eugene was not trying to get us to make the first ferry. He was, in his knowledge of the situation, positioning us to clear Zambian customs on the other side of the river. As we exited the ferry onto Zambian soil, Eugene became a boiling cauldron of adrenal activity. He parked the car quickly. He bolted out of it. He grabbed us, ordered us to the customs office. We were barely running across the parking lot. And he led us there through a gauntlet of tricks and schemes and confusions that made my head absolutely spin. I had to obtain a visa right there. And the officer asked me to plop down a lot of money to do it. And it had to be in U.S. dollars, way more U.S. dollars than I had. I had converted to South African rand, so I was done. I was going back over the river, but there down on the counter plops a whole bunch of U.S. dollars from, guess who? Eugene. He knew it was going to happen. Nobody in our group needed U.S. dollars but me. He anticipated it, and he paid the money without any questions. He was ready. I would have been in big trouble that day trying to satisfy all of the protocols. But as a sea of humanity formed at the front of that building, Eugene's vehicle was kicking up dust and we were on our way out of there. Well, not quite so fast. We came to a border check, and the two guards there, this was the way it worked, get all of your papers in order, show us that you have everything, or you go back to the customs office for more payments and more time, and now at the back of the line. That was the way. Eugene presented every paper in order just like it needed to be, and again, we were on our way. I sometimes think if it wasn't for Eugene, I'd still be in Zambia today. He knew what we needed to do. He anticipated all of the deal. And time after time on that long trip, he executed the right protocols, met every requirement, and skillfully navigated one trouble spot after another until we reached our teaching post safely and on time. Maybe you've been in a spot like that somewhere. It might have been an attorney. It might have been a guide. It might have been somebody in a different setting, but you know what I mean. There's some times when you need a guide. You need someone who journeys with you and applies their expert wisdom to help you through what you're facing. They know precisely what you need to do to accomplish what it is that you want to do. Well, in some sense, that illustrates the function of an ancient priest 
in Israel's history. And this brings us back to the book of Leviticus today in chapter 6. Leviticus chapter 6, if you'll make your way there. The ultimate good we remember, the ultimate joy, the very reason for which we were created was to dwell in the presence of God. To walk with Him, to worship Him, to serve Him. Living in the presence of God is the ultimate reality. It is the ultimate joy. And all of the Bible is put together to help us recognize how that experience was lost and how it will be regained. Well, this journey has then brought us through Genesis from paradise created to paradise lost to the promises of God to restore His presence among His people. It's brought us to Exodus where God comes down from Mount Sinai to dwell in the tabernacle that He has designed and says, Israel can meet me here. But remember how Exodus ends on this crisis, this glorious note. The presence of God has now come to dwell in this tabernacle But who can approach him? Not even Moses, the great mediator, is allowed into his presence, which troubles us. We question it. Why is this the case? He's been in the presence of God on top of Mount Sinai. Now Mount Sinai has come down to the tabernacle and Moses can't come in. How does the dwelling place of God become the tent of meeting? Where has God started? Sacrifice. Leviticus 1.1, we meet it right away. Sacrifice. I want you to see this, to understand this, God says. You must come by death. You must come by a sacrifice. And now as we've come to chapter 6 of Leviticus, He places alongside a a second very important feature, and that is priesthood. So remembering in the drama of it all, we put these pieces together to understand God's redemptive plan, and He sets them side by side. It is sacrifice, and it is priesthood. The priests of Israel were individuals selected by God to help the Israelites approach God through the prescribed ritual system God demanded. And in this case, of course, it was no twisted human system that they had to navigate In this situation, it was the holy God of the universe before whom they would fall in their sin should they ever step into His presence unprepared. So the priests helped the Israelites know how to approach God. They were ordered to steer that ministry. And again, in this drama that is played out before us, Leviticus, like for those joining us perhaps here today, We've discussed this the last two times we've been in Leviticus here, but it's like a drama. It's like watching a movie. Don't come to Leviticus and say, it doesn't apply to me. It doesn't help help change my life. It doesn't fix anything for me. You don't watch a movie like that. You don't watch a drama that way. You come to it and you soak in it. You let its message come and you will analyze and think about it and you'll apply it but it's more that you feel it. It teaches more than meets the eye. We're not going to linger long over the text before us today, but as we read it, let the words soak in and know that as they come by God's Spirit to our soul, they are teaching a lesson. There's a message here for the New Covenant Church of Jesus Christ. As we look Chapters 1 through 5, then, we noted that they are largely oriented to the Israelite people, addressing the kinds of sacrifices that God demanded for sinners to enter His presence. This is what the people must do. You must bring this sacrifice or that sacrifice. And remember the strong emphasis upon placing their hand upon it, leaning very heavily upon the body of the sacrificial victim and thereby identifying with it and gaining their atonement, the forgiveness of sin before the Lord. This, Israel, is what you must do. Now we come, in chapter 6 and 7, more to an emphasis upon what the priests must do. Now these aren't rigid categories, and I'll make something of that, Lord willing, in a little bit here, but there's an emphasis here upon now the priests. And what their job is, is they steer the people of God and guide them through the ritual system. 
We're not provided with every detail. These texts will not satisfy our every curiosity, but they give us enough to get into the drama, to see the situation here. So as we've worked our way through the first five chapters on the left column here of this graphic, we've looked at burnt offerings. These are offerings entirely consumed with an emphasis on devotion to God. Nothing is preserved in these sacrifices. Then we looked at grain offerings in celebration of God's goodness and again devotion to Him. Then peace offerings. This was the one offering where the Israelites were permitted to eat a portion of the sacrifice and so families would gather. It was a time of fellowship. It was a time of being at peace with God and with one another in fellowship. Then there were sin offerings. Uh, This now, the first three, in a sense, coming as a sinner by nature. In the next two occasions, in a sense, coming by acts of sin. And the sin offering and the guilt offering, very similar. The guilt offerings involving reparation, something that had to be fixed because of the sin. And also just a little bit of difference with the blood manipulation, with how it was collected and how it was applied in the ritual system. We've discussed this. Now we come in chapter 6 and 7. It's 6-8 in the Hebrew 6-1, which may make life a lot easier for those that are studying through it. But it's chapter 6 and 7 in the Hebrew Bible, beginning at 6-8. In our Bible, we now look at the priestly ritual. And I know Eugene's not a perfect illustration of this, but kind of put yourself in that spot. We need these guys. We need them to walk us through. We need them to study the protocols and the ritual. They must represent us before God. We need their help. The Israelites are being taught to understand. So we come to verse 8. And we find first again burnt offerings. But now from the angle of what the priest must do. Verse 8, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, and that should make sense to you if you've been thinking about Leviticus, you've been through the series with us. God spoke to Moses. He's speaking from the tabernacle. You approach me on my terms and here's how it happens. Sacrifice. Now to the priests who will represent you and make sure that the sacrifices are properly offered. We're going to talk about burnt offerings. God commands Aaron, verse 9, and his son saying, This is the law of the burnt offering. The burnt offering shall be on the hearth, on the altar, all night until the morning, and the fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it. This is an important point. God's Word alone reveals how His people will approach Him, and He starts here with this burnt offering, probably referring to the sacrifice that starts the day, but even more to the sacrifice, the burnt offering that ends the day. Because at that point, priests, you need to know this, you've got to keep the fire burning. It can never go out. Someone had to take a rotation and attend the flame on the altar every single night for centuries. It never went out. We're not told the significance of this, but it certainly reminded Israel of the never-ending importance of worship. We weren't going to pack it in one day, take a day off or a week off, Every single day this fire needed to be burning. Now, of course, there was uh, travel and things like this, and a lot of things we don't really even understand about the rituals. But this is important because it's mentioned five times in this section. Verse 10, The priest shall put on his linen garment and put his linen undergarment on his body, and he shall take up the ashes to which the fire was Reduced, has reduced the burnt offering on the altar and put them beside the altar. Then he shall take off his garments and put on other garments and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out. Just in case the priest missed this, here it is again, the emphasis. The priest shall burn wood on it every morning and he shall arrange the burnt offering on it and shall burn on it the fat of the peace offerings. Fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually. It shall not go out. Think about the visual message of this. As the ashes are taken away out of the 
this area and outside of the of the wall that separated the tabernacle and also the taking off of the garments it's saying this is a very holy place this is a very distinctive place unto god but we take out the refuge we throw it outside even changing clothes in the process this is the burnt offering we move at verse 14 to the grain offering verse 14 And this is the law of the grain offering. The sons of Aaron shall offer it before the Lord in front of the altar, and and one shall take from it a handful of the fine flour of the grain offering and its oil and all the frankincense that is on the grain offering, and burn this as its memorial portion on the altar, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And the rest of it Aaron and his sons shall eat. It shall be eaten unleavened in a holy place that that is in the confines of the tabernacle in the court of the tent of meeting they shall eat it it shall not be baked with leaven i have given it as their portion of my food offerings it is a thing most holy like the sin offering and the guilt offering a thing most holy that is only priests can eat it it's not that somehow the food is itself transformed but that it is dedicated to god So they alone can eat it. It is a most holy thing. Verse 18, And every male among the children of Aaron will eat of it as decreed forever throughout your generations from the Lord's food offerings. Whatever touches them shall become holy. Now regulations found elsewhere seem to indicate that holy things are made unholy by touching something that's profane or common. That's not devoted to the worship. So the idea here may be whatever touches them shall first be made holy. In other words, only a holy thing shall touch these holy things. Not that any holy thing throw it up against a wall and the house is holy, but rather nothing but that which is holy can touch this. This is absolutely vital to the approach of God, and it will be holy. So the Aaronic priests are supported then, also we note here, by the offerings of the Israelites. Their devotion to the task of helping the people approach God was to be compensated by the gifts of God's people in worship. They were to eat of that sacrifice on some level. There were stipulations depending on the sacrifice. But this concept is repeated through other sacrifices. Now, verse 19, we're introduced to a grain sacrifice we've not yet seen. Some would see it as just a part of the grain sacrifice now applying to the priest. Some would see it as a separate. I'll just put it up here on the graphic that way. But it's a priestly consecration offering. And so we have something additional here, beginning at verse 19. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, This is the offering that Aaron and his son shall offer the Lord on the day when he is anointed, a tenth of an ephah of fine flour, as a regular grain offering, half of it in the morning and half of it in the evening. It shall be made with oil on a griddle. You shall bring it well mixed in baked pieces. Your marginal notes can help you here. There's some confusion as to even what that means. But it's like a grain offering, and you will offer it for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. The idea of the flame is sending the smoke upward to the very nostrils of God, the sinner being presented to the Lord Himself. In verse 22, the priest from among Aaron's sons who is anointed to succeed him shall offer it to the Lord as decreed forever. The whole of it shall be burned. Every grain offering of a priest shall be wholly burned. It shall not be eaten. What's going on there? They eat some as they are offered, but when they offer... To the Lord, they don't eat it. That is, they receive support from the worshipers they help, but they themselves give of their own wealth. And when they give of their own wealth, they consume none of it, but give it wholly to God. I think we have to be careful of application to the New Testament church along these lines, but I think there's some strings here that certainly connect, and we even have some indication that the New Testament authors drew some of those lines between the Old Covenant ritual and the New Testament church. But thinking about this, how the priests profit from the worshipers, yet give of themselves, it reminded me of a pastor I heard of once who said that it's absolutely illogical for me 
to receive money from the church and then to give some of it back. And so he had determined that giving was for other people but not for pastors. And, and how do you think about that, pastor? I just think, I'm really, really disappointed for you. You have just turned one of the great joys in life away with your illogical conclusion. And have you never read Leviticus? The priests also are part of the sacrifice. They're also part of the giving and the joy of being able to approach God through sacrifice, not just through the sacrifices of others, but through their own. Everyone gave sacrifices to God, even these fallen priests. We come then next to the sin offerings. And you'll notice here that the order has shifted. You would think that, okay, here's the sacrifices for the people and now the sacrifices, uh, or the, the ritual for the priests to follow. But you notice that the order has shifted. Now sin offerings follow and peace offerings are going to end up being at the very end of the order. There's some reasons for that that we probably don't know, but it seems to be ordered according to the frequency that the priests would be operating in these sacrifices. It also seems that it might be that the peace offerings are at the end because they are the ones that are wholly voluntary and there are some directions given to people in this. Now, hang on to that thought. As you put it all together, you realize, don't you already, we're not reading an encyclopedia. It's not, here's the Levitical priest directive. And it's all by itself and all there. We've got pieces of it in chapters 1 through 5, and now we're getting pieces of it here, and we're getting pieces of it elsewhere. Hold on to that thought. We'll come back to it. But let's look momentarily at the sin offerings, beginning at verse 24. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the sin offering. In the place where the burnt offering is killed, shall the sin offering be killed before the Lord. It is most holy. That is the animal slaughtered off to the north side of the altar. The priest, verse 26, who offers it for sin shall eat it. In a holy place it shall be eaten in the court of the tent of meeting. He doesn't take it home, but in this holy place he consumes it in the presence of God. Whatever touches its flesh shall be holy, and when any of its blood is splashed on a garment, you shall wash that on which it was splashed in a holy place. Again, through ritual, there is an emphasis on cleanliness and on the holiness of this blood. Verse 28, And the earthenware vessel in which it is boiled shall be broken, but if it is boiled in a bronze vessel that shall be scoured and rinsed in water. You don't throw out the permanent vessel, but the clay pot really couldn't clean up because it was so dry and would, would, would be saturated uh, with the animal's parts, and so you just threw it out, and they were very inexpensive, so that was conceivable. And every male among the priests may eat of it. Again, we read in verse 29, it is most holy, but no sin offering shall be eaten from which any blood is brought into the tent of meeting to make atonement in the holy place. It shall be burned up with fire. So here's a unique thing that the priests have to know. If the blood is taken into the tabernacle somewhere and applied there, then on that sacrifice we burn it entirely. So somewhere along the way you go, I'm thankful for the priests. I'm thankful they can keep all this together and they know all of this ritual and they can guide us through it so that we do not anger God and come into his presence on the basis of what we just think will work. And I think we should stress as well as God's not being arbitrary here. He is being instructive. He's teaching, but he's not being arbitrary. priestly ritual for the guilt offering follows chapter 7 verse 1 and remember i know we can read this I, I i realize it doesn't get applied directly in our church's life soak in it soak in it take it in if you've never read leviticus we're getting through it with you all right take it in think about it see the drama this is the law of the guilt offering it is most holy. In the place where they kill the burnt offering, they shall kill the guilt offering, and its blood shall be thrown against the sides of the altar. We're used to this. We've seen it. 
Verse 3, and all its fat shall be offered. The fat tail, the fat that covers the entrails, the two kidneys with the, with the fat that is on them at the loins. And the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. The priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering to the Lord. It is a guilt offering. Every male among the priests may eat of it. It shall be eaten in a holy place. It is most holy. The guilt offering is just like the sin offering. There is one law for them. The priest who makes atonement with it shall have it. It's just like the sin offering. A little bit of a difference to acknowledge the distinct reasons for bringing the sacrifice. Verse 8, And the priest who offers any man's burnt offering shall have it for himself, the skin of the burnt offering that he has offered. It could be used in varying ways in household use. And every grain offering, verse 9, baked in the oven and all that is prepared on a pan or a griddle shall belong to the priest who offers it. And every grain offering mixed with oil or dry shall be shared equally among all the sons of Aaron. We come then, as you can see, verse 11, to the final offering, the peace offering. And most of the description, or the longest description we find here, verse 11, the law of the sacrifice of the peace offering that one may offer to the Lord, if he offers it for a thanksgiving, Then he shall offer with the thanksgiving sacrifice unleavened loaves mixed with oil, unleavened wafers smeared with oil, loaves of fine flour well mixed with oil. With the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving, he shall bring his offering with loaves of leavened bread. And from it he shall offer one loaf from each offering as a gift to the Lord. It shall belong to the priest who throws the blood of the peace offerings. We know what that means. Land in Leviticus here, you go throw the blood. We know what that means, the application of the blood. And verse 15, the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering for thanksgiving shall be eaten on the day of his offering. He shall not leave any of it until the morning. No compromised food will be eaten, even though eating of meat was very rare. It was to be left to this focus. But if the sacrifice of the offering is a vow offering or a free will offering, compare there to verse 12. A thanksgiving offering, it's motivated by a desire to uniquely thank God, this by a desire to enter into a vow with God, or simply a free will offering. Verse 16, it shall be eaten on the day that he offers his sacrifice, and on the next day what remains of it shall be eaten. But what remains of the flesh of the sacrifice on the third day shall be burned up with fire. If any of the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering is eaten on the third day, he who offers it shall not be accepted, neither shall it be credited to to him. It is tainted, and he who eats of it shall bear his iniquity. This is where you need a priest. Not now. No longer that needs to be burned. You're free to eat this, but in this way. Verse 19, flesh that touches any unclean thing shall not be eaten. Now we'll talk about cleanness later, Lord willing, in the series, but take it here to just say that it points to people as sinners. Not all uncleanness was sin, but it was just people not ready to eat this holy meal or participate in it. All who who are clean may eat the flesh, but, verse 20, the person who eats of the flesh of the sacrifice of the Lord's peace offerings while an uncleanness is on him, that person shall be cut off from his people. And if anyone touches an unclean thing, whether human uncleanness or an unclean beast or an unclean detestable creature, and then eats some flesh from the sacrifice of the Lord's peace offerings, that person shall be cut off from his people. That kind of sounds troubling. Cut off from his people. What does it mean? Probably in generic terms, it simply means to excommunicate, to set outside the holy nation because of a violation of the approach to God. We live in a culture now, and Israel lived in a culture for very different reasons where it's up to me to decide how to approach God. 
I'll do it the way that makes the most sense to me. But here there is a warning. You approach God on His terms or you can be cut off from His people. For the Israelite who violated the law of God, this could be excommunication from the assembly, whatever that meant. And we're not told entirely. That doesn't mean, it doesn't seem in all cases that the person was run off. They might have been cut off from his people living among his people. Maybe some synapses connecting to what we see today in a church where there is a church discipline case and we still see that person in our family or at a meal, or in town, or at work, something along those lines. But there were definitely times when cut off from his people meant execution. It just depended on how it had to be applied given the circumstances. But one thing is you read that phrase, you know this is serious stuff. That's part of what the drama is teaching us. Verse 22, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, and now some indicators to the people, speak to the people of Israel saying, you shall eat no fat of ox or sheep or goat. The fat of an animal that dies of itself and the fat of one that is torn by beasts may be put to any use, any other use, but on no account shall you eat it. For every person who eats of the fat of an animal of which the food offering may be made to the Lord shall be cut off from his people. So a lamb is torn by a lion. You don't take it into God's holy tabernacle and offer it on the altar. Moreover, you shall, verse 26, eat no blood whatever, whether of fowl or animals, in any of your dwelling places. Whoever eats any blood, that person shall be cut off from his people. And I think the idea just being that the meat was to be drained of blood, not that no blood in any way, shape, or form, no corpuscle was left but just that it was drained away, saying the life belongs to God alone. Hang on to that thought. Don't drink blood. Don't eat blood. Verse 28, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever offers the sacrifice of his peace offerings to the Lord shall bring his offering to the Lord from the sacrifice of his peace offerings. His own hands shall bring the Lord's food offerings. He shall bring the fat with the breast, that the breast may be waved as a wave offering before the Lord. A wave offering. Literally, waving it. There was a vertical and the horizontal, lifting it up and down or to the side, depending on the particular type of sacrifice, but saying to the Lord, this is yours, perhaps. Verse 31, the priest shall burn the fat on the altar, but the breast shall be for Aaron and his sons, and the right thigh you shall give to the priest as a contribution from the sacrifice of your peace offerings. Whoever among the sons of Aaron offers the blood of the peace offerings and the fat shall have the right thigh for a portion For the breast that is waved and the thigh that is contributed, I have taken from the people of Israel out of the sacrifices of their peace offerings and have given them to Aaron and the priests and to his sons as a perpetual due for the people of Israel. That is, some goes to them in this fellowship meal, some goes to the priests, very possibly some type of interaction there and fellowship there. But this is, verse 35, the portion of Aaron and his sons from the Lord's food offerings from the day they were presented to serve as priests of the Lord. The Lord commanded this to be given them by the people of Israel from the day that he anointed them. It is a perpetual due throughout their generations. Let's think on this for a moment about those that minister for Christ those that serve God's people, seeking to encourage them to God, the priests in that ancient setting, those who minister in Christ's church today. Paul draws on this background in 1 Corinthians 9 where he says, Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? So with the temple, the ultimate end of the tabernacle as it's positioned on Mount Zion, that's where he's drawing. Of course, that's present uh, there in Israel at the time. 
And he says, Don't, did you not notice this? That the priests participate in the sacrifice. In the same way, verse 14, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. There is a principle that we see here in the book of Leviticus that reveals the mind of God on some level. And that is that there would be a calling upon individuals to serve His people and that those individuals should be compensated for what they are doing. Now, Paul, of course, in the context here says, I did not exercise that right. But he actually calls it a right. God does not call people to His ministry to serve only in their own ability, through their own financial resources. Now, there's a lot of debate on this, a lot more than we might expect, and I think sometimes we probably just tag into whatever our tradition is, but there are traditions where those who preach and teach the Word of God and shepherd God's people are never paid by the assembly, and there are some who choose that way. We would not cast doubt on anyone in whatever they choose. Paul said, I don't exercise that right. But there is a principle here that, again, I think we should follow just as we talked about the principle of the priest giving. There's a relationship here that's indicated by what the Lord has laid out in His Word. Now we have a summary here at verse 37 as the chapter comes to close. This is the law. No question to us what he's saying. This is the law of the burnt offering, the grain offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, the ordination offering. For some reason he switches the order a bit. Uh, and the peace offering, which the Lord commanded Moses on Mount Sinai on the day that He commanded the people of Israel to bring their offerings to the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai. So sacrifices established, priesthood addressed. And this had all been addressed previously in some level in Exodus. But here we come to this place, and in His mercy, God speaks to His people. Let's not miss the point that we can approach Him. What a privilege it is. He lays out an elaborate ritual system to teach His people that sinners can approach God, but only through the death of a sacrifice substituted in the sinner's place. God carefully orchestrates this drama to teach us that. So we put those categories in place. We hear and learn of the mind of God through His Word that this is how He plans redemption. A sacrifice in the place of the sinner. Blood had to be shed and the sacrifice had to be consumed in strict accordance with God's law. And in His mercy, God provides a priest to learn the protocols, and to help God's people approach Him in faithful, trusting obedience. This is God's care for His holiness. It's His love for His people. It's His provision for His people along these lines, century after century after century. So God in His Word says, paradise is lost. You will surely die, but I will send one who will crush Satan's head. And that prophecy pointing us through a particular lineage of people, from that lineage of people will come this Messiah. But as God prepares us for that, how on earth do we know who He is? Part of how we know who He is is through the genealogical pointers, but part of how we know who He is is by God establishing this system and saying, see it. Look at it. Smell it. Get in the middle of it century after century after century while the genealogy continues along its line. Pointing us to an ironic priest right no but to a priest after the order of Melchizedek a priest can you imagine again with me the complications of this ritual system we feel the weight of it 
today uniquely, and we've, we've drawn attention to it in the past weeks, but today uniquely, the cartload after cartload and armful after armful of wood to keep this thing ablaze always, 24-7 for generation after generation. The slaughter, the blood, the cutting, the burning flesh, the eating of sacrifices by certain parties in specific places, the taking on and off of clothing, and all according to strict and sometimes complicated regulations. Do you remember the linen undergarment? Why that? Well, we learn in other passages of Scripture that the linen undergarment was basically like compression shorts minus the swoosh. But that's what they were. They were underneath your robe. They didn't have pants, but they're underneath your robe because this is hard work. And in the hard work, bending over in your robe and perhaps even having to get up on top of things in your robe, it could, could be ex- they could be exposed. So for the priest, they have to even think about that because they are at it here. It's hard stuff. And I say again, God is not torturing His people. Although this system, we have to say, is torturous on some level. Century after century, the priests of Israel helping Israel approach God on His terms, and the terms are complicated. Sacrifice is essential. Substitution is possible. And the forgiveness of sin is attainable by God's provision. This message is drilled home day after day after day. The whole drama stuck in the mind. It preached loudly that God is a holy God, that we are sinners, corrupted, every one of us. That God has made a way for sinners to enter into His presence. Interesting feature of the Pentateuch then. I'll bring you back to a thought I put in your mind a little earlier. I think it's a good place to bring it out. You could bring it out anywhere in studies through the Pentateuch. But I, it, it always is, has, has intrigued me, and I guess I've thought about it just a little bit more with this sermon. It's always intrigued me how you can't just turn to one section and go, here's the, here's the Levite's job. It's not an encyclopedia entry. Priesthood, ritual duties, here they all are. It's written more the laws in and out, woven throughout a narrative. It's a story. And there's no way for the priests even to know what they're supposed to do. I mean, it'd be really foolish for you to go home and say, well, everything a priest is supposed to do is in Leviticus 6 and 7. We covered it today. I hope to not think about it again for a while. That'd be wrong. Because it's not all here. It's woven throughout the entire Pentateuch on some level. They are woven through it such that you had to read the whole thing. And you had to keep rereading the whole thing. And you read it in the midst of this story of redemptive history. The redemptive works of God. So the ritual law was dependent on the history of redemption. It wasn't its own thing and it wasn't invented by people. Israel's history did not hinge on the ritual itself. The ritual hinged on God's redemptive work with His people through providential and sometimes miraculous means. Remember what God said to the Israelites before the Exodus? Before the Exodus, He laid out the Passover meal. Then, the history. Then, He delivers them. I think it's a good encouragement to us to read the entire Bible this way. That can be a really discouraging statement if you're tracking with me. I'm not going to know how to be a good father, a good mother, unless I read the whole Bible. I'm not going to go to the encyclopedia section on moms and dads i got to read genesis to revelation because it's wrapped around a story it's wrapped around redemptive history i'm not going to know how to be a good employer or a good employee by tapping into just certain texts of scripture i got to read the whole bible and whatever it is as a child as a student 
in any relationship in this world as we relate as sinners to others and sinners relate to us, all of it, we have to read the whole thing. Or should I say it, we get to. God knows what He's doing. And He has structured His revealed written Word of God such that we have to keep letting it pass through our mind and we're never going to grasp it all. But don't be discouraged. Don't run to the Bible and point to a single verse and create some big deal out of it like it's the, the key to life or the only verse in the Bible that pertains to parenting or something like that. Read the whole thing again and again and again. And from an aging man, I can tell you, you're going to read it and go, wow, I never saw that before. I'm putting this together with something I've never seen before. And I think that's God's mercy to us. To say, I give you this book, I give you this revelation, and you're going to walk with me through this text as long as you live. You're never going to get it all figured out. You'll never know it all, but you'll keep seeing new insights and new truth. In some sense, that's what's provided here for the priest. It indicates this to us. So we don't minimize the words. We don't minimize even here the rituals and the rules. They're essential. But the words are oriented to the whole story of redemption and to walking in the presence of God as He dwells with His people through His Spirit. And that story unfolds in the progress of revelation first and foremost in Jesus as God's final high priest, not after the order of Aaron, but after the order of Melchizedek. Think of it. A priest who says, drink my blood as the sacrifice for sins. No Israelite was to drink the blood of the sacrifice because the life belonged to God. But our priest says, my life, my life belongs to you. I give you my body. I give you my blood. Commune. I, the sacrifice for sin... And the manipulation of the blood in this case with the final sacrifice is to drink it. Not literally if anyone's concerned, but in communion with the one and final high priest and the ultimate and final sacrifice. This whole system from Genesis 3 working itself out through bloodlines, through genealogies, and through rituals, through the approach to God, pointing us ultimately to Jesus Christ, the final high priest, who brings us into the presence of God by His own blood as our great priest and the final fulfillment of the whole system. Eugene, I had to depend on him. I had to trust him. He led the way home, and I was so glad that he did. That just begins to touch who Jesus Christ is. He will lead us all the way home, but not just as a favor, not just as part of one's short journey, but with eternal implications. Are you seeking to be a follower of this guide, of this priest? Are you depending on your own way of thinking and living? Are you approaching God on your own terms, seeking to be good in comparison with others, rather than seeking sacrifice and priest? You need a sacrifice and you need a priest. And you're not going to come into God's presence any other way. And if you say, well, that's just your church's opinion, that's been God's opinion for centuries. And he's painstakingly made that clear. You will come to God only through the death of a sacrifice, a substitute in your place, and you will come to Him only as the priest who presents you as the one mediator between God and man. As Hebrews 10 puts it, every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Christian, Rejoice. 
But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, who are being purified and made holy. In light of the drama of Leviticus 1, I encourage you to feel this reality, that Jesus is that priest who brings us into the very presence of God, the unpreparedness that I took to that border crossing some years ago, major unpreparedness on my part, it does not begin to touch the unpreparedness that you are going to sense when you come to the border crossing between this life and the next and you don't have a priest. If you're going to serve as your own priest, know that you have been warned. Know that the word of God has been sounded in your ears to say you need Jesus to cross that border. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. And centuries of preparation had pointed us to Jesus. He didn't sit down in the desert one day and write a book that told us how wonderful he is and told us to look to his teachings. God wrote a book for ages, for centuries, that said he is the priest that will bring you, a sinner, before me. What joy is ours to know him and what need is yours if you do not. He knows how to navigate the way. He knows how to deliver us from sin. He knows how to transform His people. He knows how to fit us for heaven. We need a mediator. And so I say to you today, look to Jesus and live. And for those of us who have done that, isn't it a great privilege and joy to think of what we've left behind and what we now have and to know that our sacrifices are the praises that come from a heart that says, thank you, Jesus. Thank you. I praise you. I exalt in you. I trust in you as the mediator that will take me into the presence of the Father forgiven. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you in our need, in our weakness and in our sin, and we're thankful that we don't have to shy away from that idea, but rather to face it squarely, that we fall short of your glory. We are not going to fit ourselves for heaven on our own merits. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for what he did to die in the place of sinners, to take our sin, to pay that price, and then to give us his life. And as we come at times in communion as a church and eat the flesh and drink the blood of our Savior, we realize what immense privilege is ours. And I pray that through all eternity we will praise the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Draw to Christ anyone who knows Him not here this day we pray. And for those of us who do, may we lift our voices and our prayers in praise to you. Through Jesus we pray.